What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Hindus usually greet Diwali, their great festival of light, by letting off an awful lot of firecrackers. But this year, in Delhi, they've been banned. The atmosphere is too polluted already. But although dirty air is killing many Indians, politicians aren't doing much to clean it up. Air pollution is one reason the Chinese authorities give for their disapproval of today's winter clothing festival, when people burn paper replicas of clothes to keep their deceased loved ones warm in the afterlife. It's actually one more sign of the increasing control over people's lives. But first... We will bury this enemy with our blood and bones. That's what Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, told his country's soldiers this week. It's been a year since a rebellion began in the north, in the Tigray region, and the country's leader is preparing for the violence to reach his doorstep. On Tuesday, a state of emergency was declared as rebels from the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, marched towards Addis Ababa, the capital. The TPLF had previously dominated the federal government for nearly three decades. Abiy urged civilians to take up arms. America and Britain advised its citizens to leave the country. Civilians in Tigray have been subjected to brutal violence and suffering. While Abiy rallied his troops, the UN announced the results of an investigation. All sides in Ethiopia's conflict, it reported, have committed human rights abuses that could amount to war crimes. Including unlawful killings and extrajudicial executions, torture, sexual and gender-based violence, violations against refugees and forced displacement of civilians. The UN said the crisis could only be resolved through negotiation. Talks look far from likely. Instead, the capital of Africa's second most populous country may soon become a battleground. There is definitely a sense that we're entering a scary new phase. The rebels have made serious gains. Tom Gardner is The Economist's East Africa correspondent, based in Addis Ababa. Though it is unclear yet whether they are capable of taking the capital or, or more precisely when they might be able to do that. And how surprising are these developments, in particular the advances that the rebels have made? I would say pretty surprising if you look at it from you know perspective of a year ago when very few people would have imagined it would come to this the TPLF had attacked military bases in in the north and Abiy Ahmed the, the prime minister then promised to apprehend them and bring them to justice it was meant to be over in a matter of weeks and at first it did seem that that might be the case within a month Ethiopian forces paramilitaries from the Amhara region next door to Tigray and troops from neighboring Eritrea 
who were allied with Abbey, captured almost all of Tigray. And the TPLF leaders, they disappeared into the mountains and, and Abbey declared, prematurely it turned out, victory. But I'm disciplined. Tom, given that Abbey and the Ethiopian forces were in such a strong position, how has it come to this? Well, over the last eight, nine months, the TPLF have staged a really dramatic comeback. By June, they'd recaptured most of their region of Tigray. And since then, they've been expanding from there. They've crossed into the neighbouring region of Amhara. And in the last week, they've claimed control of two strategically important towns. And in fact, I think probably a third now in the last day or so. They're marching into a far, in a bid to control the road and rail links to Djibouti. That's really important and would make a siege of the capital possible. And in fact, it sort of eerily resembles their path to Addis Ababa in 1991, which after 17 years of guerrilla struggle, took them from Tigray to the throne in Addis Ababa, where they controlled the central government for almost 30 years until 2018. That was the year that they were pushed out of power by protest, which resulted in Abiy Ahmed's appointment as prime minister. And what's changed to the power dynamic since last year? How is it that the Tigrayans have been able to gain so much strength and turn the tide against Abiy's army? Well, I mean, first and foremost, the atrocities, widespread atrocities, massacres, rape, looting that took place over several months in Tigray was an extraordinarily effective recruiting sergeant for the TPLF and its defence forces. Huge numbers of highly motivated youth seem to have joined their forces and they're under the command of very effective and very experienced generals. At the same time, there has been a mounting rebellion in Abbey's own region of Aromia, led by the Aroma Liberation Army, and they've said they've joined forces with the Tigrayans in the last few days. They've actually linked up. Recriminations are already flying on the on the federal side. I mean, Abbey's blaming foreign mercenaries for fighting alongside the TPLF. Others around him accuse domestic traitors of leaking battlefield intelligence to the TPLF. And then in Amhara, which is this important region allied to the federal government in all this, many of them are beginning to blame the federal government effectively for self-sabotage. Now, this week, Abi declared an emergency. What does that entail? The emergency decree grants the government sweeping powers of arrest, restrictions on free assembly movement, it enables a really fierce clampdown on media deemed to be backing the TPLF, It also appears to lay the ground for military conscription. Already in recent weeks, we've been seeing that Amhara's government has been sending armed young men, some of them armed, I should say, only with machetes or knives, in their thousands to the battlefield. People around the prime minister, including one of his top advisors, recently said, you know, that's what's needed to defeat the rebels. You need mass mobilization of the entire population. And the UN and the EU all are calling for diplomatic solutions, for a mediation, for negotiated settlement. Abbey's response is such calls for talks are an affront to sovereignty. Meanwhile, the TPLF sense victory and it doesn't appear to have much interest anymore in talks either. You're in Addis Ababa. The rebels are closing in. The prime minister's telling civilians to prepare to fight. What do you expect to happen next? 
I think it would be foolish to discount the possibility of fighting on the streets of the capital, on the streets of Addis Ababa, which is the seat of the African Union. And almost since the moment the first shot was fired, this has been a war characterized by atrocities and possible war crimes. And the longer it goes on, the fear is that is only going to worsen. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Across India, millions are coming together to celebrate Diwali. Food, family and fireworks are at the heart of the five-day celebration, the most joyous in the Hindu calendar. But this year, if you happen to be in northern India, you may struggle to see the Festival of Light. Smog and smoke are smothering large parts of the country. And despite the government's pledges at COP26 to be carbon neutral by 2070, in India, air pollution is an issue that's largely kept out of the climate conversation. At this time of year, the level of air pollution shoots up across northern India. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief. Normally in this season, for the festival of Diwali, there are firecrackers. This year they've been banned for the obvious reason that they just cause too much more pollution in addition to all the other stuff. This part of the world at this time of the year has the highest levels of pollution recorded on Earth, basically. Well, what's it like to be there in this smog? Well, for one thing, it's just grey. I mean, you never see a blue sky for days on end. At the most, it's a sort of bluer, slightly bluer shade of grey. But also, it stings the eyes. And if you rub your eyes, you'll find little bits of grit. It's acrid. It burns your throat. You sneeze a lot. You feel tired and sleepy. I mean, there are just a range of effects like that. So it's just uncomfortable. And also, it makes everyone a little bit anxious. You kind of worry, what is this you're breathing? You don't feel like doing much exercise and just tend to spend a lot of time indoors. And Diwali aside, why is it worse at this time of the year? Well, it goes up and down. I mean, the trouble is that, I mean, there's a geography here in northern India with the Himalayas being such a, you know, a high mountain range and this very, very flat, very crowded and very huge plain. The wind dies down in the wintertime and it gets chilly. And so the smoke tends to sort of freeze over these plains, which have about 600 million people living in them. So that's when the pollution is worst. Right at the end of October, beginning of November, there's a a change of seasons. Farmers north and around Delhi, they harvest the rice and start planting wheat. And between the harvesting of the rice and the planting of the wheat, they have to clear the fields. And the easiest and quickest way to do that is by burning off the rice stubble. And that creates a sort of cloud of smoke that that tends to just drift over Delhi. And do we know what that's doing to people's health? So India has, according to recent research, about 1.6 million people die every year from the effects of air pollution. They say that every three minutes a child dies from air pollution. You know, the leading cause of death in Delhi, according to a doctor I spoke to recently, will soon be lung cancer for adults in Delhi. 
And it's very likely that this year, air pollution is going to be killing more Indians than COVID-19. Max, with the UN Climate Summit, COP26, going on right now, is air pollution something that's being talked about in India? It is, but it's kind of strange. The government seems to make a distinction between the whole pollution discussion, which is parked to one side, and climate responsibilities as if that's quite a different thing. You know, the government claims that it's doing a great deal about climate. And at the Glasgow summit, Prime Minister Modi declared that India would become carbon neutral by 2017. He listed five different targets that India would meet. And India put on a very good show of being a responsible global citizen. But this is somehow often divorced from what happens on the ground in India, where, although the government has done quite a few things to combat pollution, it doesn't sort of allow this to come into the same box so that people's everyday health is kind of divorced from, you know, this larger, longer-term question of climate. Even if Mr Modi hasn't made direct pledges about air pollution, is his general pitch on carbon neutrality nevertheless likely to help? Well, it will certainly help in some sense. I mean, India will make more energy from renewable energy and so on. But at the same time, India is doing some things to make things worse. I mean, it is doing very little to cut back on producing power by coal. India is a big coal miner. It has a lot of its own reserves of coal. The government is actually pushing the state-owned coal company to produce 40% more coal and has no immediate plans to cut back on the number of coal power plants or even to install scrubbing equipment that makes their output cleaner. And it's also shut down different NGOs that have been advocating for a cleaner environment. Especially given the terrible effect on the health of so many Indians, why is there such a lack of urgency in reducing pollution? Well, it comes from both sides, both from the public and from politicians. I mean, on the one side, politicians in general, in a particularly raucous, loud democracy such as India's, find it more profitable and easier to get votes by offering quick and showy solutions than by taking longer term or more effective measures that are involved sort of, you know, complicated and often multi-source approaches to solutions. And at the same time, India's bureaucracy itself is completely siloed into different parts. I mean, there's a Ministry of Environment, but there's also a Ministry of Coal, a Ministry of Petroleum, you know, a Ministry of Power Supply. And these guys don't talk to each other. So what are the immediate things that politicians could be doing? Well, there are a lot of very simple things that could be done to make things better. I mean, one is to simply... For example, to give more teeth to agencies that already exist, to implement the laws that already exist, to take care of people who do who pollute, up to industries that pollute, getting fined and so on. But there could also, for example, coal power plants. One recent study showed that some of the oldest and dirtiest plants could simply be shut down and there would still be plenty of power left and they could be replaced by plants that are already under construction that are simply a lot more efficient and less less dirty. So that would be one simple way. But there's also, you know, the government could just simply listen to citizens groups which have begun to sprout up more and more as this people become more aware of the health effects of pollution. There is a bit more pressure from the ground up and this is beginning to play out. So Max, do you see a way through the smog? Well, yes, but the thing is that there's no silver bullet to this. It's a very complicated problem of many, many different layers. There are all kinds of different sources of pollution. So it will take a broad commitment. And, you know, it will take a lot more than just words at international conferences. It's really a matter for Indian governments at every level to get into and to start listening to their own people who are asking for change. Max, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
Babbage, our sister podcast on science and technology, last week explored how the air in cities can be made cleaner. Dr Audrey de Nazelle from Imperial College London explained the impact such pollution can have. Air pollution is so harmful. It really attacks us throughout various stages of our lives, from uh, the times when we're in the womb of our mothers all the way to getting old. It affects the way our lungs grow and it affects the way our brain develops. It has impacts on diabetes, cardiovascular disease being the major one, respiratory disease. Even if there's been some indication, it might affect obesity. So it really is one of those things that has so many negative impacts. Download Babbage from wherever you get your podcasts. While in India, people are celebrating Diwali, in China today, a different annual tradition is taking place. Hanyijie, or the Winter Clothing Festival, sees people burn paper replicas of warm clothes on city pavements and in village courtyards. It's intended as a reminder that deceased loved ones are also feeling the cold in the afterlife. In a similar way, at funerals, many Chinese people burn imitation banknotes and paper models of goods that they believe the departed may need. But such superstitions are not favoured by China's Communist Party. And in some parts of the country, it has looked to suppress them. In August this year, we saw a revival of a nationwide debate about a crackdown on a very specific form of Chinese superstition, which is the making and selling of funeral supplies that are intended to be burned. Paper models of people, of houses, smart cars, televisions, imitation money. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. And in Shanxi, a northern province, which is a very traditional province where a lot of Chinese traditions are born, they drafted rules banning the making or selling of these funeral supplies. David, why have the authorities undertaken this crackdown? It's not the first time. We've been seeing this for a few years now. And basically, Communist Party authorities take a kind of retro view that it's superstitious. So we've seen these for decades, you know, back to the days of the Chinese Revolution in the 1930s, 40s, crackdowns on superstition. But now there's a modern twist too that it's called a source of air pollution. It's also seen as extravagant. And we see a lot of rhetoric from the party and the government about how it's better to spend money on old people while they're still alive and not have extravagant funerals for them when they've passed on. And so this is kind of generally part of a very sort of nanny state feel to China in the age of Xi Jinping. And how's the ban and the nannying gone down among Chinese people? We saw some interesting online debate with people saying, you know, why is the government getting involved in such a small thing? And I thought it would be interesting to go to somewhere which really will be affected by this, which is the village of Mibeizhuang, a hub for paper funeral goods for the whole of China. Very large percentage of them around China come from one rather unlovely village in Hebei. And it was a busy time because when I visited recently, they were getting ready not just for funerals that happen all around the year, but for this festival, Hanijia, which is one of the great ghost festivals. I bumped into some funeral organisers. They were loading a sort of small pickup truck with cardboard flat pack models of their trees covered in gold coins, paper televisions. And what's really interesting is that you have this crackdown on superstition. When I ask these traders, do you think that your customers actually believe that burning these funeral goods 
will reach their relatives in the afterlife, they were kind of incredulous. What day and age is this? It's, it's just a tradition. And I met one man, Mr. Wen. And he was a third generation seller of paper offerings. But he said, you know, just because I'm in this business, don't think that I believe in it. Spending money on this stuff is like throwing your money away. But these traders must be pretty worried, David, about what it's going to mean for their livelihoods. When you put it to them that their trade may simply just end one day, they go, yeah, and there's not a lot we can do about it. One man said to me, look, we used to set off firecrackers for thousands of years at funerals, and now that's banned and everyone's just stopped because modern-day Chinese are pretty obedient. And I think that makes this a really interesting little case study of how tradition and superstition and that kind of nanny state work in modern China. And how does the cultural suppression of these traditions compare with the crackdowns of the Mao era? Well, you're absolutely right that as soon as you start talking about things to do with culture or traditional superstition, it's reasonable to start remembering the Mao years, and in particular the late 60s, early 70s, during the Cultural Revolution, when Red Guard's fanatical followers of Chairman Mao smashing temples, burning libraries, attacking monks and priests. And it is true, every aspect of Chinese private life has to kind of fit into a larger pattern of being good being thrifty, being environmental. We see this in terms of injunctions to not order too much food, to have a clean plate, to not spend too much on weddings. But when you look at this case study of this funeral goods crackdown, you realise that it's actually wrong when some commentators, particularly in the West, say the Cultural Revolution is back. For one thing, it's just sort of indecent. 1.6 million people at least died in the Cultural Revolution. But it's also really interesting that if you look at what was going on in the Mao years, that was a genuinely radical revolutionary move. And to accuse Xi Jinping, today's supreme leader, of something similar is to get him wrong. Because today's China is not revolutionary and radical. It is bossy, it is socially conservative, and relentlessly controlling. If you're trying to weigh whether China's rise is a challenge to Western liberal democracy, you need to be accurate about what we're seeing. And its rise as this authoritarian giant where the party has views on every aspect of private life. That is already a big enough change and a big enough disruption without mistaking it for a return of Mao-era fanaticism. David, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittleson and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Duncan Barber, Sam Colbert, and Sam Westron. Our producers are Stevie Hertz, William Warren, and Elise Jean-Baptiste. And assistant producers, Jason Hoskin and Abisoyo Osindairo, with extra production help this week from John Joe Devlin. We'll all see you back here on Monday. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace 
it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.